Good evening. Good evening. <laughs> I need you to help me stay awake tonight. I was at Logan Airport at 6 o'clock this morning, so um, I'm, I'm going to do my best to get through this and stay awake and trust God. Happy New Year! That was much better. It is. It's a brand new year, and I believe God has some exciting things for us, so let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight. As we just look back quickly over last year and the fact you brought us through it and all that you brought us through. And Lord, there may have been difficult times and challenges that we faced and gone through and maybe still be facing, but you've always been faithful. And as we look back on last year and see your faithfulness, it gives us confidence facing this year. For only you know what this year holds for us personally and as a body of believers, a fellowship of believers here. And so well, one thing we know is you are faithful to the promises you have made. You're faithful in your love for us. And you're faithful for the call that you have upon our lives and upon this church. And so we pray that every time we come from this pulpit, any, whoever it is, that it will continue to be a deposit in our lives, Father, that will enable us, strengthen us, encourage us, and yes, even correct us at times because of your faithfulness to us. So we trust ourselves right now to the Holy Spirit to bring out of my heart what you've touched my heart with. And I ask you to to bring me the words, and more than that, the anointing of the Spirit to communicate what is in your heart for us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Um, I've been reading a book, uh, a number of books. I tend to read multiple books at the same time and fail to finish multiple books at the same time. I get so far in them, and I guess I get either what I thought I needed out of it. I don't know. Anyway, um, and it's, it's challenged me with something, because I'm, I'm reading a, a, a theology that, that I don't particularly agree with, but I want to learn what it is, why they believe what they believe. And that's a healthy thing to do, because it challenges for you to understand, why do I believe what I believe? I get concerned because there's so many Christians that are afraid to look at beliefs that, that don't, they don't agree with. And usually when we do that is because we're really not sure we believe what we think we believe. Because if I really believe it, I'm not going to be threatened by something else. So you can tell me till you're blue in the face that Jesus Christ isn't Lord and that doesn't threaten me because I know he is. And I believe that with all my heart and I, I know you do too. But this challenged me because it brought, and this is one of the values of doing it, it brought me back to something that is a foundation for our faith, it is a foundation for our relationship with God. That we we've in the in the the the, the movement in the kind of the, the the group that we're all part of, we don't hear a lot about. And yet, from the theology that I was reading, it's founded on this. And it, it start, I want to start with this simple example. I was in in looking at this, I was remembering how my father taught me to ride a bicycle. And the only way you can learn to ride a bicycle is to get on a bicycle and ride it. You can't study a book. I mean, you can understand the principles of balance. Because the basic principle of balance is you don't go too far to the right or too far to the left or you're going to fall down. And you can teach a child that all you want, but the only way a child's going to learn how to balance is to get on a bicycle and go down. And my father took me down. You still see it. Held onto the back, took me down the street, and in the next thing I know, I'm halfway down the street, and I look back, and he's still back there. So I was riding it, but I had to learn where that sense of balance was. And in the course of it, I would make mistakes, and I would go too far to one side, and I'd have to put my foot down and catch it and get back on it, and then I'd learn maybe go too far to the left-hand side. Well, the church is kind of like that. 
we go through different eras and different periods of time when, when, when different types, parts of the message of the gospel, the wholeness of the gospel, is emphasized more than others. And the problem is we get so focused on where we're leaning that we forget that there's another side that maybe we came from. So the church, and I've been a Christian for 44, 45 years now, and I've seen some of this movement. And as I study, just studied church history and study some of the older saints, you see where they were coming from a different place. And we're living in an era where grace is so strongly emphasized, and it should be. But that's coming out of a period in time when grace was hardly mentioned. You heard about the holiness of God. You heard about righteousness. You had the holiness movements and other movements like that, which are totally biblical. But we've kind of reacted to that. I remember hearing some young preachers, and you can tell where they're coming from is they're reacting to things that their fathers taught because, because they saw an imbalance going in. So as we get more mature and we get older, we begin to understand that just because we've been going so far this way doesn't mean that there's another, another position over here and that maybe we will eventually learn how to balance these out as I eventually did in terms of learning to ride a bicycle. Having said all that, we're going to go back and look at how God taught this. We have our own ideas of how to communicate ideas and how to theology and how to communicate all these things. But nobody knows better than God who we are and what we're like because he made us. And nobody knows better than God how to communicate to us what he knows we need. So in order to begin to look at that, we're going to look at an example of how God did that with the children of Israel. So we're going to pick up in Exodus chapter 19. And Exodus is, of course, the story of God bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt. And as he brought them out of Egypt... God has a task in front of him that they didn't understand. Israel is a nation that has been in covenant with God, that God founded with Abraham. And in that covenant, God was revealing his character and his nature to them, both his holiness and what he required, but also his love and his grace. And Abraham began to understand that as he grew in his relationship with God. And then you had Isaac and then you had Jacob, and then Jacob's, Jacob's family ended up down in Egypt, and most of you know the story, and they ended up in Egypt over a total of about 430 years. And while they were in Egypt, the generation that went down died off, the Pharaoh that knew who they were died off, and the, the, the Hebrews lived there in a nation that had over 2,000 gods. So whatever needs you had, they had a God, and they would have an idol. And so if you had a need for, for, for a, a prosperous grain harvest, they had a, a God, an idol that represented the harvest, and they would worship that. And they had, they had a very highly advanced medical, scientific, and, and medical practice. And so the, the children of Israel that God brings out with, by Moses out of Egypt is steeped in the things of Egypt. When you and I are born again, we come out of a world that we've been steeped in. And Egypt represents the world. It represents the world's ways, the world's resources, the world's methods of doing things. And although we may not have idols on our dashboard, or some of you may have at some point, we have our own idols, and we're not going to really focus on those. But, but this ties into us. So what God sees is a people, his own people, that don't know who he is anymore. And so God wants to introduce himself to them. 
And so what God does is God tells Moses, and this is what chapter 19 is all about, how he wants to introduce himself. So we're going to just read down through some of this. I may have to summarize some of this. In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. And they departed from Rephidim and came into, the wilderness, came into the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and God called him from the, mountain, from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, that's the Egyptians, that's the Israelites, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings. That meant my, how I supernaturally delivered you out of Egypt. And, and look at this, I brought you to myself. I didn't just bring you out of bondage. I brought you out of bondage to bring you to me, to a relationship. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all the people. So this is a relationship that he's talking about. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words, Moses, that you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came down and called for the elders of the people, and laid before them these words which the Lord had commanded them. Then all the people answered together and said, listen to this. So Moses comes down and tells them, God wants to introduce himself to you. And all the people answered, verse 8, and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. This is a Sunday morning church that has just heard their pastor preach a message on what God's promising us and wants us to do this year and we stand all up and come an altar call and says, God, what you say to do, we will do. Is it time to go to lunch? <laughs> and so these are people just like us. They hear what God is saying to them and they're confident in themselves that they will do what God's called them to do. God knows them better. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord says to Moses, Behold, I come to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you and they may believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, "Go to." Them. So Moses has reported to God, the people said, Whatever you tell us to do, we'll do. And here's how God's going to handle that. Verse 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes. Why? Because they were smelly, and he didn't want them near him? No, I'll explain to you in a minute what this is all about. And let them be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down upon the mountain, Mount Sinai, in the sight of all the people. And you shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourself that you do not go up on the mountain or touch its base. For whoever touches the mountain will surely be put to death. And not a hand shall touch him, don't touch him, but he shall surely be stoned and shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near to the mountain. What is this all about? God's calling him out and then trying to scare him to death. What God is doing here is he's introducing himself to them and the thing he wants them to see about himself, first of all, is his glory and his majesty. And they want it, he wants them to see his awesomeness, who he is. 
They have spent 430 years worshiping gods that don't exist. And he wants them to see with their senses that he exists, that he's really there. And they want him, he wants them to experience something about his awesomeness, his holiness. That's the other thing. So the reason they have to go consecrate them, consecrate means set yourself apart. Washing their clothes wasn't because they were necessarily dirty or smelly. It was to communicate to them in their senses that they weren't clean enough to come into God's presence. In fact, everything that God now instructs them to do in the form of worship through the tabernacle, and Gordon's talked about this in some of the things that he's taught, was to communicate to them the difference between them and God so that they could be prepared to recognize who he was so that they could come to him in humility. So God wants to communicate to them that he is a holy God, that he is an awesome God, that he is awesome and mighty and powerful, and he is not to be taken for granted and lightly. And in the age, the time that you and I are living in, and with this wonderful message of grace that's been so necessary, and with all the things we've heard about relationship One of the problems with that is we begin to develop a familiarity with God. And we're we're to come into his presence. Hebrews tells us in several places we're to come boldly into his presence, but we're never to forget that we can come boldly into his presence only because we're in Christ. And he's communicating, you try to come into my presence on your own and you'll die on the spot. Now is that because God gets mad at them? And he's going to shoot arrows at them if they come across the boundary? No. It's inherent in the fact of his holiness. God's holiness is not just being better than you or I are. He is absolutely pure and holy and righteous. The Bible talks about, and we may get into this a little bit, the Bible talks about his holiness as a consuming fire. He's so holy that anything that is not as holy as he is gets consumed in his presence. He burns with a holy fire. And that's hard for you and me with our, with our perverted minds in the sense of compared to his holiness to grasp because we measure everything by being relative to it. And I've taught this many times, but in the room right now, there is one, there's one temperature. Some of you are warm. And some of you may be chilly, but it's the same temperature. If you've been married, you understand what that's like. (laughs) We have a heated pad in our bed, and we have separate controls. Because Anita's concept of warm and mine are two different things. (laughs) She gets in bed, and it's all turned up. Mine's turned off. And yet it's the same temperature in the room. Because she's experienced whether it's warm or cold based on how it relates to her body temperature and how she feels. And we do this with holiness. We do this with righteousness. We measure what we think is holy or right by our experience of it. In fact, Paul says you can't measure yourself by yourself. We can only measure ourselves by God. So it's hard for us to grasp that just as if it was hard for them. So God is demonstrating something that to get through to their senses, not to scare them and drive them away, but to actually draw them closer. So that's the purpose of this. Verse 14, Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified them. They washed their clothes and he said to the people, be ready for on the third day, for, for the third 
Be ready for the third day and do not come near your wives. In other words, don't have physical relationship with your wife. Why? Because it's bad? No. He's telling them you've got to change the way you're acting. Get out of your normal routine and begin to consider yourself separate. Separate. You're doing things as if you are holy. You're getting rid of the carnal things. You're getting rid of things that that overload your senses and you're beginning to consecrate yourself so that you can come into my presence. Verse 16, then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp were trembled. This is one of my favorite verses of the Bible. This is, this is Sunday morning church. And Moses brought the people out of camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. And, the mount, and mount, now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And the smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses up the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And then the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people that they break through it and gaze at the Lord, and they may perish, and the Lord that the priests may come near but consecrate themselves. In verse 23, But Moses said to the Lord, The people are not going to come near the Mount Sinai, because you warned us, saying, Set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, Get away, get down then, and come up, you and Aaron with you, but don't let the priests and the people break through. So Moses went down and spoke to the people. Now, Moses comes up. Chapter 20 is God now gives Moses what we call the Ten Commandments. And he writes them with his finger in stone. Ten Commandments. Look how it begins, chapter 20, verse 1. Remember, God's introducing himself to them. I am the God who spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God. Notice, I'm the God who belongs to you. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You didn't come out on your own strength. You didn't come out because Moses was such a great leader. I am the Lord, your God. I am the Lord, Adonai. I am the ultimate authority, and I am your God. And I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt. Now, one of the things we don't hear a lot about in church is our indebtedness to God. Because in our culture, being indebted is a form of bondage. But indebtedness creates a relationship. Now, when you're indebted to a bank or you're indebted to a credit card company, that puts you under pressure. But you know where they are. And you know you owe them something, hopefully. And it creates a relationship with you, with them. But we have an indebtedness to God who is not a, not a bank who's trying to collect money from you. We have an indebtedness to God because of who he is and what he's done. We have indebtedness to God, first of all, because he created us. The life that is in us that we call me, my, our, my life, that life I did not create. My parents did not create it. They did not create the life that was in those cells that came together. So I owe my very life to God. 
let alone I owe my rescue and my redemption to him. There's some mornings I get up and I'm just, I'm starting to have a nice pity party. I'm, I'm sorry I'm the only one here that's ever done that. I'm not feeling, you know, my body's aching, I'm, signs that I might not be as young as I used to be, uh, just tired and whatever it is. You look at what you've got to do that day, and you get up in the morning, and I've got to take a little dog out in the cold and wait for her to do her business and hope she gets it done before it gets any colder and bring her back in. And I've got to remember, I've got to do that tomorrow, and I've got to do it the next day, probably every day for the rest of my life. And the next thing I know, I'm having the beginnings of a nice little party, and it's just me that's going to attend it. And then I have to go back and remember... I have no reason to ever feel sorry for myself because I look at the cross. I look at what God was willing to pay to rescue my life from myself and from the bondage that I was in. So just as he was the Lord God who brought them out of Egypt, out of bondage, he is the Lord my God who's brought me out of the bondage that I've been in and continues to bring me out of that bondage. So we owe him something. You see often in Psalms, they talk about what they owed him to. And that's a good, healthy relationship when what you owe is your life to him. And Paul never lost sight of that. He always referred to him, I'm a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was how he saw himself. And so God is introducing him. I am the Lord God who brought you out of Egypt, out of bondage. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, the first four commandments have to do with their relationship with God setting this re- relative position in place. I'm the one you owe everything to, and therefore you shall not replace me with some other God that you owe something to. Not only that, you shall not take my name in vain. It's all based on establishing the groundwork of the, the, the relationship that God is, wants to have with them, is demanding to have with them. Then the next six commandments deal with how we relate to one another. Isn't it interesting? So, so part, of God's, part of God's announcing who he is involves God's commanding how we relate to one another. Why? Because how I relate to you is a direct relationship of how I relate to God. So we think we can come to church and, oh God, I love you so much, but I got a real problem with that guy at the other end of the row here. And, and you can't do that. Oh, we can do it, but it doesn't mean anything to God. John says, that the, how can you say you love God when you hate your neighbor whom, whom God loves? And by the way, that person, that Christian that's hurt you and offended you, Jesus died for them as much as he died for you. So he gives them these Ten Commandments. We're not going to go through them. So let's go on to verse 18. Now, this, now we're going to see the people's reaction. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, the mountain smoking, and when the people saw it, they trembled and stood far off, and they said to Moses, You speak to us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. In other words, what they're saying to the people is to God, they're saying to Moses, look, <laughs> this is a little more than we can handle. Uh, you, go, you go talk to God, and you come back and tell him, tell us what he says, and we'll do it. 
Now, let's look at this a second. God's plan was so that they would not sin, so that they could flourish in this relationship that he had with them. The foundation of this was for them to fear him. We'll talk about that in a minute. To recognize the awesomeness, the holiness, the authority of who this God is. God saw that as the foundation for the relationship that they were to have with him and to enjoy him. The people said, so God said, the way to do that is you've got to come near to me and you've got to begin to experience my awesomeness. And the people said, (laughs) that's a little much for us. We've got a better idea, Moses. This is how we'll learn to serve him, is you go find out what he says and you come tell us and then we'll do it. That's kind of like people in church today that don't spend time in their Bible, that don't spend time praying, and they come to church and they expect the pastor who spent time praying and spent time in God's presence to tell them what God says and then they're going to go obey it. It doesn't work any more today than it did back then. But the ultimate thing here is, listen to this, this is just out of the Garden of Eden. God says, this is the way I want to do it. This is what will work. And the people says, no, we don't want to do it that way. We got a better idea. And I believe they were sincere when they said, and we will, do, we will obey you. But they didn't know themselves the way God knew them. They didn't know what they needed in order to obey him. And God did know. And what they needed was what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. We'll get to that in a few minutes. Verse verse, uh, 20. Then Moses said to the people, I love this verse, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that his fear may be upon you. Wait a minute. Is this double talk? Moses says, don't fear, God's come to test you, so that you'll fear. Well, these are two different words. Obviously, Moses is saying something here that on first blush, doesn't make sense. But he's saying, do not be afraid. There's a fear that's like a phobia. I'm afraid, so I run away. God's come to test you so that you might fear him, so that you may not sin. That fear is a reverence for who this God really is. So the fear of the Lord the Bible's talking about it's not a fear that he's going to strike you or shoot you. It's, an awesome, it's a love for him out of his awesomeness and what we owe to him. When you realize what you owe to him, what we owe to him, how can we not love him and honor him and respect him? And so they failed the test. So let's go on. God's system of worship in the tabernacle and all of his laws were to remind them that he is holy and that they are special because they belong to him. So let's look at another one. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 6. Let's look at this pattern again. Israel is now at a time, actually this is Judah, this is the, the nation's now divided, this is the southern nation, and they're outwardly doing everything they're supposed to do. They're coming to church, they're singing, they're raising their hands, They're reading their Bibles. They're doing all the outward things, but they're doing them out of habit. 
their heart is no longer is no longer in it. And so God has called a prophet, he called several of them, but he calls the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah was a man that was in, in the court of the king. He was, he was, we may have been from a wealthy family, but he was in a high position in the king's court. And God calls him to be a prophet from that place. God calls other prophets like Amos, who was just a hick from the fields. So God causes different, calls different people from different backgrounds because that's part of the, what he's able to use to minister to them. So let's put Isaiah 6, 6 back up. In the year... Oh, it's over here. Okay. Just trying to keep me awake. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, and each one had six wings. I just, there's no way our minds can begin to grasp, can begin to grasp what this is. But it's just at the very least, let it tell you that what he saw was beyond anything we can experience, or see, or imagine. He had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. I don't know how that happened. And with one. And one cried to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. They did that 24 hours a day. This is in the presence of God. So Isaiah's taken up. We don't know whether it's physically or in a vision, but he's taken up to see before God can commission him to speak for him, he has to see who this God is. Because once they saw who God is, whatever they went through, whatever persecution they went through, whatever suffering they went through, there was something instilled in them that drove them on. That no matter what came against them, the reality of God in that experience is something they could not deny. And I think the reason so many Christians drift away when there are pressures on them, when the world's when the world's drawing them away is they've never had this experience with who this holy God is. Verse 4, And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. And here's his reaction. Woo, it's good to be here. I I need to be here. I am called of the Lord. Oh, thank you, God. I got a seat right here. no. When that's our attitude, that means we've never really known who God really is. His answer is in verse 5, And I said, Woe is me. Now Isaiah was a pretty good person compared to most people then that day or today. Woe is me because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. And why do I know that? For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken from the tongs of the altar. And he touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Notice what's happening here. Isaiah recognizes, I can't trust myself. Because compared to this holy God I've seen, my lips, my tongue, my words are unclean. Once he recognizes that, now God can cleanse his tongue. Remember when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and 
Jesus said, you know, I, I, I didn't come to heal the well, those that are healthy, but I came for the sick, spiritually sick. Why? Because the Pharisees thought they were doing great because they obeyed all the outward laws. And he's saying, I can't help you because you don't recognize who you are compared to God. You think you're something else. But this poor sinner that's coming up claiming, you know, woe is me because I'm a sinner, that man I can deliver because he knows who he is because he's somehow seen the holiness of God. So here's Isaiah. Now God can cleanse his tongue and trust him and send him forth because Isaiah knows who he is in his own right compared to this God he is to serve. Your iniquity is taken away, your sin is purged. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go tell the people. And he gave them a message. One that was really in my heart as we started to talk about this is Job. Job is one of the most difficult books to understand, in part because it's a play. And there are a lot of different themes that you can get from the book of Job. But the one that really strikes me the most is, is and it relates to where we, where go, we go through in the times we live in. Job, by God's own testimony, was a righteous man. So this isn't Job's opinion of himself. This is God saying Job is a righteous man. And he avoids, he chooses, he turns away from evil. Satan comes in order to challenge that and say he doesn't serve you for no reason at all. But he is, because Job was a wealthy man, maybe one of the wealthiest in the whole part of the country or the whole area. He was highly respected. He would sit at the gate of the city, which was a position of responsibility where people would come and get counsel from him. He was wealthy beyond imaginations. He had a big family. And, and, and Satan comes and says, does Job serve you for no reason at all? And I'm not going to get into why this happened or how this happened, because in some points that's not the point of the story. But what happened is Job has a couple of days that if you ever read about it, it'll make you feel like you've never had a bad day. Because in the course of one day, he loses all of his children, he loses all of his flocks, his house burns down, and the only thing he doesn't lose is his wife, who says you should curse God and die. The next day, he loses his health. And he ends up sitting on a pile of ashes, scraping with, pot, with broken pottery the boils and things that are on his skin. And in his mind, he hasn't done anything wrong. Oh, it gets worse. Because his friends show up. His friends from church show up from their Bible study. And they've gathered around and they're trying to console Job by debating why this has happened to Job. Well, you must have sinned somewhere. Somewhere in your past, something you've said, he goes through his whole litany for about 29 chapters of this debate back and forth and Job's debating back and forth with them. But in the course of this analysis of why these bad things were happening to somebody that God says is good, things begun to come out of Job that I don't believe he realized were in there. And sometimes we don't know what's really down inside of us until everything we've put our trust in 
is either taken away, shaken, or we have reason to doubt it. Because it comes to the place, it comes to the place where Job begins to cry out that what's happened to him is not fair. I want to talk about that for a few minutes. Because this ties directly into what we're talking about tonight. And this ties into where you and I live. Very often, people in our family, things happen that we don't understand why. Or things don't happen that we believe should have happened because we've been praying, we've been fasting, we've been doing what we think we should do and we don't see what we think we should see, or we're seeing things happen that we don't know why they're happening, and somewhere down inside we think this is not fair. A book I was reading this summer on the book of Psalms said we often come out with this thing. Why is this happening to me? Why is this bad? And he raised the question, but why shouldn't it happen to you? Why do you think you're living in a world that's foreign, fallen? You're living in a world where Satan is the god of this earth. Why would we think things couldn't happen to us? Now, that does not mean that's the end result. But we get hung up on why is this happening instead of what do we need to do? We ask the wrong questions. And it gets to the point with Job where this you begin to find, because Job begins to cry out now from his heart, And he's basically saying, what's really not fair here is if anybody else did this to me, I could call them into court and a court would judge what was right and what was wrong. Now think of what Job's saying there. This gets to the heart of what we're talking about here, about how he saw God. He's saying, if it were anybody else, I could sue you and bring you into court and somebody who is righteous could judge between us. God! I could haul God. Now listen to me. In order, because I'm a lawyer, in order to sue somebody, you have to believe that there were rights that you had that that other person violated and that you were entitled to compensation. And in court, you have to establish to the judge that they have violated something. They've, they've, they've violated some right you have, whether it was to your property or possession of something or your body. They violated something that you have a right to and that they should compensate you to pay for what they've done wrong. And that's what Job is saying, I would like to do to God. Now, we would never come out, we're two good Christians, and say those words, unless maybe we were under that kind of pressure. But sometimes down inside of us, Job didn't know we had this in him, sometimes down inside of us, we have attitudes, we have expectations. Pastor Chris talked about this several weeks ago, and I've been meditating on this. Talked about, we get expectations that we've created. And when they don't happen, we get frustrated. We get hurt. We get disappointed. And what he was saying, and I've heard this from other people too, we need to replace those expectations with thanksgiving. 
Because what Thanksgiving reminds us is, I owe everything to him. I don't know about you, but I don't want to go into court with God and demand what I'm entitled to. There's so much talk today about what my rights are. Well, if we were to stand before the court of God and demand what I'm entitled to, I would burn for eternity in hell. That's what I'm entitled to on my own. And that's what you're entitled to on your own. And when we forget that, when we forget that the only standing we have before a holy God is that by his grace we are in Christ who is holy and we bear his righteousness and his holiness. We have none of our own. The Bible calls them filthy rags. And when we've been with Christ for a long time and we begin to forget these things and this attitude of, well, I'm entitled to this and I should begin to seep in. Why? Because our culture is saturated with it. And it seeps into the church because the culture around us is trying to force its way into our hearts. And unless we guard our hearts, as Proverbs warns us to do. And how do we do that? Well, we'll see in a few minutes how God helps Job with this. So this attitude was in Job to the point that he said, this isn't fair because I ought to be able to bring you to court, which means you've wronged me. Then God sends a a sort of a prophet, Elihu, who begins to kind of answer some of these things. And finally around, I think it's chapter 38, we're going to go there, chapter 38, I, I, I like to look at this as a courtroom. So you've had this debate going back and forth, and, and the lawyer stands up for God and starts arguing his case, and finally God says, son, sit down. I want to start asking the questions here. So we're going to go through some of them to get a flavor. So God, Job has cried out, I'd love to bring you in court so that I could ask some questions. And God said, all right, I'm going to now cross-examine you. You ready? Verse 38. And the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. So he's not just sitting down. This is a whirlwind. Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you will answer me. Is God mad at him? Yes and no. God's angry for him. Just like if you had good parents and you really had a bad attitude, they would jerk you up short. They would jerk the slack out of you because they know you need something firm. But they do it out of love, not because they're angry at you, they're angry for you. Where were you, verse 4, I love, (laughs) you're somebody. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fashioned? Or who laid its cornerstone? It's interesting. Our astronomers and scientists are still trying to figure this out. And they think they can. I'm not going to get off on that. 
To what found, verse 6, for what foundation was it fashioned? Who laid its cornerstones? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut the sea with its doors? Who burst it forth and issued it from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and the thick darkness its swaddling cloud. He goes on and on and on and on relentlessly. We're going to stop there. Now let's go over to chapter 40 because chapter 39 is more of this. Now God takes a breath here. I'm just dramatizing it. Verse 40, Moreover the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Shall we correct God? He who rebukes God, let him answer. Then Job answered the Lord and said, What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Well, he doesn't because he can go on. Once I've spoken, but I will not answer, yet twice and I will proceed no further. Now it's interesting here. Job hasn't repented yet. He's basically saying, who am I to talk to you? You've got an advantage over me. But he hasn't faced his own heart yet. Because God would have stopped. But he doesn't. Then Job answered, then, then the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind. Now prepare yourself, it goes again, prepare yourself like a man. Anytime God says, stand up like a man, it's not going to be good. And I will question you, you'll answer me. Would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? That's what was in God's, Job's, heart, Job's heart. Job was trying to justify himself by accusing God. How often do we do that? It's very subtle. Do we make excuses when God's word clearly says something? And we imply that, well, God didn't come through. I I, I did what I'm supposed to do, and you didn't come through. Isn't that what God's saying? We condemn him so that we might be found right? Have you an arm like God or strength? Can you hunger like a... Thunder like a man. He goes on and on and on. Verse 40, chapter 41, which it's not going to put up there. Can you draw the Leviathan out with a hook? Or, you know, he's just comparing. What, what, what can you do, Job, compared to what I can do? And again, God is putting him in his place, but out of love. And when he finally gets to the end, verse 40, chapter 42. Job answered the Lord and said, I know now that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. I now recognize your sovereignty. You ask, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I uttered what I did not understand. Look at this, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. I spoke beyond what my understanding was. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said I will question you, and you will answer me. Verse 5, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Not necessarily his physical eyes, but the eyes of his heart. Now I see who you really are. Just as Isaiah had to see 
who God really is, just as God wanted the children of Israel to see who he really is. The foundation of our faith, the foundation of our worship, the foundation of our relationship with God is based solely on the foundation of it, a a revelation of who this God is that has rescued us from ourselves and from our sin. True worship is founded in this realization. So much of our worship, so much of our messages are all about what God's done for me, that we forget who, we begin to think we're entitled to things. And that's what Job felt. And we can be right about the scriptures. We can be right about God's promises because God's promised them. But we can begin, this attitude can begin to sleep in, sink into us, that sl- sleep, slip into us, that somehow we're entitled to all of this because of who we are. And we can sing the same songs, we can say the same prayers, we can read the same Bible, and slowly our heart gets wooed away. And we're doing all the outward things just as Israel was doing in, in, in Isaiah's day. And they did this over and over again. Malachi. We're not going to turn there. The last book in the Old Testament of Malachi is a prophet. And the people were complaining again. We've served you. <laughs> Listen, what good does it do to serve you? I won't ask you if you've ever had that thought. What good does it do to serve you? We're going through all these difficult times. Where are you? We do what you're supposed to do. We bring our offerings. We say our prayers. What good has it done to serve you? And then God answers them. Here's the issue. Your heart's gotten off. Because the offerings you bring to me are, are contaminated. You bring sheep to me and they're, you, you don't give me the best. You give me the ones that are damaged so they're not worth as much so you can sell the others because you'll get more for them. You're not giving me the best you have. Why? Because you don't have that love for me that's in your heart. It's kind of like the husband on Valentine's Day has his secretary go out and pick something out for his wife and send it to her. She gets a present but she doesn't have his heart. God says you do it in other ways. You worship me and you say prayers, but how do you treat your wife? You're tired of her, so you want to divorce the wife of your youth. I have this against you. So it matters to God. Our heart, see our heart towards God is reflected in our heart towards one another. Again, that's why John says you can't say you love God and hate your neighbor. You can't, you can't do it. You can't do it selectively. So God measures our love for him by the way we relate to one another. Isn't this what Jesus said? The world's going to know that you're my disciples because you love one another the way I've loved you. He said, your tithes and offerings, you're, just, you're not bringing them in. You're not giving me the first fruits. You're giving me the leftovers. You're giving me, but you're giving me the leftovers. You're doing it out of habit. And that's a danger. That's hard. And in this day we live in, I struggle sometimes because we have all these convenient ways of giving. I mean, I used to, we used to write a check every Sunday. 
I don't do that. It just automatically comes out of our bank account and it comes into the church's bank account. And that's very convenient. But I've just been convicted lately and I don't know what I'm going to do with this. But, but I, it's become just so casual, I don't think about it. So I'm not, we're not bringing anything to him. And I'm not saying change the way you give, but check your heart. God's saying, your heart, you're complaining against me, but your heart's not been towards me because you've forgotten who I am. You've forgotten who I am. Our old pastor, John, that's the Old Testament. <laughs> what about this in the New Testament? Well, it's different. John 1.14. And the Word, I don't have time to go back to the beginning of it, but the Word is Christ. It is, it is the Son of God, the Son of this great God, holy. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. But we didn't see it on a mountain. We didn't see it into the throne room of heaven. We didn't see him come down, God speak to us, and ask a series of questions like he did with Job. It was now dwelling in a man. And we beheld his glory. But not everybody beheld his glory. But we did, John writes. Beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So to most of the people, this glory of God, this majesty of God, was hidden because it was dwelling in a human physical body. But it came out at times when he healed the sick, when he walked on water, when he spoke to storms. But Peter, James, and John had a a unique experience. Jesus took them up on a mountain. And the Bible says in Matthew chapter 17, we're not going to look at it. It said, well, all right. Uh, he is, I'm just going to summarize it. It says, they saw him. He was transfigured before their eyes and Moses and Elijah appeared with him conversing. The word transfigured there is the same Greek word that Paul uses in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, when he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It means to take what you really are on the inside and bring it so that it shows up on the outside. So the glory that was in him is now physically shining out of him until Peter wants to build a church around the experience. Well, let's go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We've got to bring this to a close. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. Paul's now talking to Christians, just like you and me. He's referring back to Moses on the mountain. But if this ministry of death, which was the law, was written or engraved on stones, that's the Ten Commandments, was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily on the face of Moses. What happened is when Moses came down off the mountain, the glory of God was reflect, was shining off his face. It was absorbed in his skin and in his clothes, so much that the people couldn't stand in his presence. Now, it wasn't coming out of him because it wasn't in him. It was like those old luminous dials of watches that if you warm during the day... I guess some of us are old enough to remember that. 
where, where it wearing around during the day, it had a paint that would absorb the light so that when it got into the dark, it would, it, would, it would radiate that light back out, but it would run out after a while because it didn't come out of the paint. It was absorbed by the paint, and then it, it, it faded out. So what happened is Moses, this glory, because it didn't come out of Moses, began to fade away. So This is an insight into Moses you don't see in Exodus. So Moses put a veil over his face so that they wouldn't see it was fading away. But the point is, the glory that was on that mountain got in his skin and in his clothes. Next verse. Now, how will the ministry of the Spirit be more glorious? Keep going. For if the ministry of condemnation, that's the Old Testament, the, the Ten Commandments on the mountain, had glory, the ministry of righteousness, which is what Christ has done for us, exceeds much more in glory. Keep going. For even what was glorious had no glory in respect because of the glory that excels. So he's comparing the glory that was on the mountain with the glory that's in you and me. Because who lives in you and me? We've been joined together with Christ. We abide in him and he abides in us. Not only that, God's taken his holy spirit and caused him to dwell in you and me. And we walk around every day taking for granted who it is that lives in us. And we become familiar with him. And we talk to him in a familiar way. And that's okay as long as you remember who it is you're talking to. Keep going. For if what is passing away, that's what the mountain, remains is, what remains is more glorious, what's in us. Keep going. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Keep going. Unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. Stay a second. When I was practicing law, the last law firm I was a partner in, a lot of my partners and friends were Jewish, and a few of them were devout Jews. And one of them would go to what was called a, a Torah lunch. And they would bring, a, ba- they'd bring a, a bag lunch, and they would meet in some office, and his rabbi would come and teach out of the Torah. And I sat there listening to the teaching, and they're all asking questions from the Torah, which to me are so obvious. I could see it so clearly, and they could, and suddenly I remembered the scripture. They can't understand that these things are speaking of Christ because there's still a veil over their eyes because they've not accepted who he is because the veil is taken away in Christ. Keep going. But even to this day, when Moses read, a veil lies over their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil's taken away. Now, this is a little complicated, but... Now the Spirit is the, the Lord is the Spirit, 
and where the Spirit of the Lord, there is liberty. Keep going. But we all, that's you and me. We've talked about the children of Israel in Egypt, uh, in the wilderness. We've talked about Isaiah in the throne room. We've talked about Job in his conversation with God. We've talked about Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now we're talking about you and me. But we all with unveiled face, which means we can see, not with these eyes, but with our spirit. We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Now what is this mirror? I'll go over for a couple of minutes. James talks about a mirror. He says when you you read the word and you don't do it, you're like a man who looks in a mirror and then walks away and forgets who he is. James is using the word of God as a mirror. But unlike the mirror in your bathroom that will never lie to you, it shows you just what you put in front of it. This mirror does not reflect what you look like on the outside. This mirror reflects who you are on the inside. And he's saying, the more you look at Christ who is in you, the more you will become on the outside like the one who is in you. St. Augustine has a quote. He said, when you eat food, it becomes who you are. I contest to that. Christmas, I ate a little too much and it's part of me. But the word of God... When you eat the word of God, you become like it. So the glory that was on that mountain, that glory is in you and you in me. And God needs and is counting on that glory to come forth from us so that he is glorified on the earth through his church. But just like the children of Israel, just like Job, just like the children in Malachi's day, we just take it for granted. We take all these things so far for granted because we've forgotten to reverence, respect, and fear who it is that lives in us and who this God is that's poured his love and mercy out on us. E.W. Kenyon, in his book, In His Presence, mentions this, that at one point God spoke to him and said, are you so unaware of me that you can walk around as if I don't live in you and who I am? And we do that all the time. So this is a year. I thought I didn't think of this. God dropped this in me Sunday morning during worship. And suddenly I realized, but this is the theme Pastor Chris has announced for the year, is getting to know him better. And I believe the Bible teaches us the foundation for that is to come back to the fear of the Lord. Not scared of him, but a reverence for who he is. How do we get that? We get that by reminding ourselves regularly what we owe him. Meditating on that. Looking at the cross. Reminding ourselves every day what we are like without him and how much we owe him, and then remembering the things he's done for us, 
the ways he may have delivered you, healed you, whatever he's done for us, and how great those things are, the miracles that he's done in your life and the lives of other people, or that we know from the Bible. And the more you think about those things and meditate about those things, we're beginning to magnify him in our mind, and we become more aware of him. Let's pray. Father, as we begin this year, I believe that you're challenging us because you're a father who loves us. In the book of Hebrews, you say you discipline us, you correct us, so that you can produce in us the peaceable fruit of righteousness and of holiness. And so, Father, we love you. You are a father that loves us. You've loved us so much you gave your son's life for us. How can we doubt your love for us? But like so many that have gone before us, it's so easy to get our eyes off of you and who you are and at times even to feel sorry for ourselves and complain, though we may not say it to others, it's in our heart. Purify our hearts, Lord. Call us back to a a, a revelation and increase the revelation of who you are, a holy God, a righteous God a God of magnificence and power and glory and majesty. Thank you for the Holy Spirit, for it's only through his work in our hearts that this can be done. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for bearing with me for a few extra minutes.